The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Hey, today we're going to be talking about some of the hot topics in interoperative monitoring. First, I'd like to go around and maybe we can introduce ourselves for everyone. Hi, my name is John Ney. I'm a neurologist and clinical neurophysiologist and a health services population health researcher. I'm Tara Stewart. I'm a neurophysiologist. I've been doing IONM for 14 years, both nationally and internationally. Uh, Todd Wetzel, past president of NAS, an orthopedic spine surgeon from New York. So I think one of the first topics that we want to discuss today is what are the costs associated with IONM? the short-term costs versus the long-term costs that may come into play with neurological deficits? Mm -hmm. So I, I would say the, the obvious costs are the reimbursable costs that, uh, that uh, intraoperative monitoring is reimbursed through uh, Medicare Part B, through uh, CPT codes. Um, there's an hourly rate. There are, uh, there are costs that are associated with individual modalities with uh, application of motor evoke potentials, EMG, and uh, as well as SSEPs and, and where appropriate nerve conduction studies. So those together um, for, for an average two to uh, two and a half hour surgery may come up to 1500 to $2,000. But there are a lot of other costs uh, that are not necessarily encompassed by that and that would include things like the cost for, uh, for uh, the fixed cost for the for the machine for the variable costs, which uh, would include things like electrodes, um, the costs uh, in terms of time for setup, in terms of time for uh, any time an operation might be interrupted, uh, and it's much more difficult to capture those costs. And attempts to do so have have so far ended largely in you know failure, or it's largely a big unknown. Yeah, it's funny. I think if you look at the kind of end game, what are you doing? You're increasing patient safety. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what's really the cost of that? How do you put a, a number in that? Because you can certainly look at some of the large studies, the big data, which suggests mm -hmm. that it might not be cost effective in terms of the number of deficits that we're picking up. But I think the, the key point and one that you made, John, is how do you really calculate those costs? And, you know, how do you really know what it's costing not to do it and how can you deal with all those variables. Um, I think it's almost hard uh, to decide not to monitor a case right. based on things of cost and patient safety. Right, absolutely. And, and when you look at costs, uh, you have to think of who's your audience in question. So you have right. costs that are appropriate for the surgeon, which is basically looking just for the duration of the surgery in the immediate post-operative period. You have costs for the hospital, which again is looking from the time of admission to discharge. But then you have the cost to the patient and the cost to society, which is everything proceeding from that surgery onto the right. end of that patient's life. Right. And who absorbs those costs? So certainly the patient does, and then society, ultimately the government through Medicare and Medicaid. So if you have a, a profound neurological deficit, if you have a, a tetraplegia, if you have a paraplegia, if somebody ends up with other neurological deficits that have a lifetime course, there is cost that is incurred you know, every day, every hour, mm -hmm. every yep. year for, for all those. And, you know, 
ultimately it comes down to patient safety. So if there's a relatively small percentage of patients who have neurological complications and an even smaller number who have irresolvable deficits, then you know, if we have a way of ameliorating those through intraoperative monitoring, you know, is there a limit to the amount that we would be willing to pay for that? And I'm not sure that that's been well defined. Yeah, and that's so an ethical question as, as well. As a surgeon, like, yeah. is there, how would you go through that decision-making ma matrix? Like, is there, okay, if it's less than 0.5%, then we won't have monitoring, or if it's greater than 1%, do we have that data that we can say definitively this is when we're going to monitor versus not monitor? I don't think we do. I'd, I don't think we do either, but you know, ways that you can look at it from a cost-benefit approach is you can look at the lifetime cost to the, to the patient right. and ultimately right. the societal cost, which if you have a patient at age 25 who incurs a spinal cord injury, you're talking between 10 and $20 million in cost, and maybe you have to monitor 100 patients, maybe you have to monitor 1,000 mm -hmm. patients right. before you're able to recoup those costs, but maybe that's worthwhile. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's a really good point. And if, may I ask you a question, Tara? Because Absolutely. on a practical level, you know, you're a neurophysiologist, you're talking about the benefits of your program. If you were to sit down with an insurance company executive or a hospital administrator, and they raise these questions of cost, and really, what are we looking for long-term, how would you uh, convince them that this is something worthwhile and ought to be done? I would honestly, as a researcher, because my background is in research, I would rely on the publications and the literature that we have to date. And there's been some good work and some not so good work. So the challenge for me in communicating that to the insurance companies would be to explain why these studies actually, you know, studies X represent the true, you know, closer to the, the true situation versus studies Y. Mm. And that would be my challenge. And I, I think John's done a lot of work on that, explaining how you can have uh, large sets of claims data um, research coming out right. that may not actually be that reliable. And that's, that's a challenge as well. Um, yeah. yeah, and claims data, I mean, is, is, you know, we've mentioned that's notoriously unreliable. Yeah. So. Right, right. So you have issues with the, the actual ability of coders to determine whether or not monitoring occurred, and you know, that may not be captured in either ICD-9 or sometimes not even in CPT codes, and especially when you have monitorists that may be administratively not part of the hospital in, in any way or simply contractors, and uh, that, that becomes very difficult when you're then trying to compare groups where you've identified that monitoring has occurred versus when monitoring hasn't occurred, because it's very likely that even in the group where uh, presumably monitoring hasn't occurred because of the absence of an ICD-9 or a CPT code, that monitoring actually did occur in that. So, mm -hmm. so it, uh, if anything, that tends to uh, increase the bias so that um, when you do find an effect either uh, for monitoring, that um, that effect is likely to be even greater. Also, I know like when I do monitoring, if I know that there's no extra billing that comes in with adding a modality, and it's not an extra cost. I'll add that extra modality. So I might be monitoring at a, a much greater mm -hmm. uh, comprehensive level, which would never be reflected in any of the claims. Right, data. right. Yeah. That's good. That's a really good point. Yeah. To a large degree, we just find that, that um, uh, the presence or absence of monitoring is a very blunt instrument. We don't 
oftentimes know which modalities were used and which modalities yeah. are most successful. And we had a session yesterday where um, I would say the take home point is that motor evoke potential should be done with virtually every patient. And you know that's not clear uh, in administrative data because administrative data doesn't necessarily reflect which modality, whether it's SSEPs, MEPs, EMG is actually done. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th and I think that's a very telling point. Uh, most um, spine surgeons, and I don't want to necessarily cast aspersions on my brethren, I don't think really appreciate the depth and complexity of modalities available in monitoring, and really how do you tailor all those things to different cases. Um, you know, bulbocavernosis reflects, things that are mm -hmm. very specialized. Right. Um, and the, the ability of monitoring to really pick up things in real time has gotten to a point where, and frankly, it's in, I think it's indispensable. Right, yeah. and, and I think that's the great advantage of it as opposed to uh, having done an MRI or a CT scan where you have uh, a neuroanatomical abnormality that's present at one point in time, monitoring really allows for things to, to be picked up in a real-time fashion, exactly. but you still are, are limited by physiology. It may not be at the moment when something is you know, compressed, cut, severed, retracted, it may take a minute or two. And you know, in that time, sometimes you have deficits that are permanent and unavoidable, but other times you have, you're able to, to uh, take appropriate action as the yeah. operative team Absolutely. to be able to avoid a deficit when the patient wakes up. Absolutely. So if you have like a one or two sentence message that you would like to get out there on this topic, what would it be? I, uh, boy, one or two I sentences know. is, is <laughs> not <laughs> easy. <laughs> Um, I would say that, uh, that the very likely thing is that monitoring does prevent neurological deficits and the incidence of neurological deficits as, as time goes on is less and less as our procedures become more safe, but that doesn't make it negligible or zero. And we need to decide whether or not monitoring is something that we want to keep or if it's going to ultimately fall by the wayside because of either lack of evidence or ultimately if we find that it doesn't help then you know that would be an appropriate circumstance too but excellent any, any last words well just as a, as a, a surgeon i think given the sophistication uh, the sensitivity and the specificity of all the monitoring techniques combined i would urge surgeons to look at it from a different point of view, figure out a reason not to monitor a case. Otherwise, think about how you're going to monitor the case. Okay, so that's our discussion today on costs and IONM. Thank you.